You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 95, The Iron Marshal's Stand. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I want to thank our Patreon supporters. Without your help, this show would not be possible. As you know, we've recently started doing special patrons-only bonus episodes, The last one included discussions of the Napoleonic Wars on film, Napoleon's eating and drinking habits, and the United Irishman leader Napper Tandy, among other topics. If any of that sounds interesting to you, visit patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon to sign up. Anyway, we left off last time on the evening of October 14, 1806. Napoleon and the Grande Armée were in central Germany. The War of the Fourth Coalition had only been going on about a week, but France had just dealt out the first serious blow of the conflict, a crushing victory over two Prussian field armies at the Battle of Jena. Throughout the course of the battle, Napoleon had been convinced he was facing all three Prussian field armies. It wasn't until the evening, nearly four hours after the end of the battle, that he learned the truth. Before the engagement, one of the three Prussian field armies had marched north where it had run right into Marshal Davu and his Third Corps, near the town of Auerstedt. The day before, Napoleon had sent Third Corps north in a flanking maneuver, aimed at cutting off the Prussians' line of retreat from Jena, hoping to trap their armies between two pincers, where all three of them could be destroyed. It was a good plan, but it had gone wrong. Davu and Third Corps were supposed to be supported by Marshal Bernadotte and First Corps, but Bernadotte had refused to advance. Davu had gone in alone. And Napoleon had misjudged Prussian intentions. Davu had not been facing the retreating remains of a defeated foe, but an entire Prussian field army. The French had won a complete triumph at Jena, but all their hard work might already be undone if the Prussians had managed to defeat Third Corps at Auerstedt. I thought we'd start this episode by introducing the man at the center of these events, Marshal Louis-Nicolas de Vaux. De Vaux was born in 1770, making him about a year younger than Napoleon. He came from the town of Anu in Burgundy, just northeast of the geographic center of France. The de Vaux family was noble, but relatively poor. They came from the same bottom rung of the nobility as the Bonapartes. 
rich compared to the peasants and respected in their home region, but nobodies compared to most of their peers. War was in Davout's blood. Generations of his ancestors had borne arms for the kings of France, as officers, and before that, as knights. There was a saying in Anu, when a Davu leaves his cradle, a sword leaves its scabbard. With a heritage of nearly a millennium of military service, there was little doubt what kind of life awaited Louis-Nicolas de Vaux. Despite his poor eyesight and bookish, reserved personality, he was groomed from childhood to serve as an officer in the French army. He attended the military school at Brienne, just like Napoleon, and after graduation, he was one of the elite few chosen to continue on to the École Militaire, just like Napoleon. Despite their similar ages and resumes, the two men actually did not overlap much, and really didn't get to know each other, which is a shame because in many ways they had similar personalities. Both were intense, serious, stubborn, and introverted, largely ruled by their considerable intellects. However, Napoleon could turn on the charm when he wanted to. As he grew up, the young Bonaparte learned to read people and became more gregarious and adept in social situations. Not so for Davu. As an adult, he remained intensely introverted and asocial, and he never learned to moderate that stubbornness. He could be downright nasty if he thought he was right and you were wrong. You often see this with intelligent people. They get so used to always being the smartest person in the room that they can't help but treat everyone they meet like an idiot. I think Davu meant well, but he was not well-liked. Many of his peers saw him as cold, snooty, inflexible, and disagreeable. He was a bit of an odd man out among the marshals. First of all, physically, he was remarkable only for how average-looking he was. Devu wasn't particularly large or strong. He certainly wasn't handsome, but he wasn't particularly ugly either. He was bald, with a crown of unkempt light brown hair around his temples and the back of his head. His narrow eyes appeared slightly distorted under the thick, round glasses he always wore. He wasn't much of a dresser. General Junot's wife, the acid-tongued socialite, Laura de Brantes, called him, quote, the most dirty and ill-dressed man imaginable, end quote. More philosophically, the marshals were generally larger-than-life characters, massive egos who were willing to do almost anything in the pursuit of fame and glory. Davout's personality was the opposite of larger-than-life. In fact, it was barely detectable to anyone outside a small circle of family and intimate friends. He didn't really care much for fame and glory either. Davout fought because it was his duty to his country and his cause. And ironically, he was perhaps the best among them. Obviously, the question of who was the greatest of Napoleon's marshals has no single correct answer. Historians and students of this era all have their own opinions. But, I bet if you took a poll on experts of Napoleonic history, Davout would get the most votes. I'm sure this is part of the reason none of the other marshals liked him. As we've seen, they were an intensely competitive bunch. They devoted their lives to the desire to be the best, and the man who probably actually was the best among them didn't seem to care. No wonder they perceived him as smug and superior. 
Like Napoleon, Davout had been an enthusiastic revolutionary. In the early days of the revolution, he was actually imprisoned by the royal government for his activism and drummed out of the army in disgrace. When war broke out in 1792, Davout rejoined the army as a private, but immediately distinguished himself and rose quickly through the ranks. During his service in Germany, he became close friends with another brilliant young officer, General Louis de Say. De Say brought Davout with him on the Egyptian campaign, which is where his path first really crossed with Napoleon. Bonaparte did not initially warm to him. During their time in Egypt, Napoleon kept Davout at arm's length. However, once Napoleon recognized his talents, the two formed a good working relationship. The emperor considered Davout one of his most loyal generals. He was a sincere Bonapartist. He truly believed Napoleon was the savior of the revolution, and France's best hope to withstand this time of troubles. When Napoleon restored the marshalette, Davout was part of the inaugural group to receive the honor. Many within the army saw this less as a reflection of Davout's abilities and more as a gesture to Davout's fallen best friend, General Desay, who almost certainly would have been made a marshal if he had not been killed at the Battle of Marengo. And so there was some surprise when Davout was appointed commander of Third Corps of the Grande Armée. Not that anyone doubted his abilities, by now he had proven that he was a solid soldier, but compared to the other corps commanders, he had relatively little experience commanding formations of such size. But Napoleon had faith in Davout. The emperor could recognize the qualities of a great commander under that cold exterior. Davout rewarded this faith with a brilliant performance during the War of the Third Coalition, including a pivotal role in the triumph at Austerlitz. As a general, Davout was quite a bit like Napoleon, ruthlessly analytical, impossibly attentive to detail, and gifted with that rare ability to always see the bigger picture. He had a reputation as a demanding leader. He trained his men hard, and sometimes subjected them to harsh discipline. You might think this would have made him unpopular with the troops, but Napoleonic soldiers were often willing to excuse this type of leadership as long as the general was fair, took good care of them, and won battles. Davout never let his men down on these counts, and so he always had their respect, if not their affection. It should be said that Davout's nickname, the Iron Marshal, was not entirely flattering. Yes, it was partially a reference to his toughness and tenacity, but also to his stubbornness and inflexibility. Today, we might call him a hard-ass. He had very high standards, both for himself and for other people, and he was not shy or polite about correcting those he felt fell short of those standards. Unlike many of his fellow marshals, Davout seems to have gotten little joy or exhilaration from combat. On the battlefield, he didn't see himself as the heroic protagonist of some romantic story, but as a professional doing a job. On the day of battle, Davout always wore full-dress uniform, which I think says a lot. Remember, this was a man who typically did not take a lot of pride in his appearance. So, with Davout's character in mind, perhaps his meeting with Marshal Bernadotte on the night of October 13th makes a bit more sense. We talked about this last episode, but to recap, on the night before the battles of Jena and Auerstedt, 
Devu had gone to the headquarters of First Corps, commanded by Marshal Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte, to confirm their plans for the next day. Devu had orders from Napoleon sending his corps on that flanking maneuver to the north, and he expected First Corps to support him in this movement, as they had for the whole campaign so far. But Bernadotte had responded with hostility. Devu felt his orders implied both corps would make the march, but Bernadotte had no such orders, and bristled at the feeling that he was being ordered around by Devu. They could not come to an agreement, and the conversation ended with Devu storming out of Bernadotte's office, slamming the door behind him. As he left First Corps headquarters, Devu remarked, quote, So much for that, end quote. The details of this incident have been hotly debated ever since. Devu and Bernadotte were alone for this fateful conversation, so no definitive account exists. I have seen many competing explanations as to why Bernadotte lacked any orders sending his corps on the flanking maneuver. The most common one, and the one that makes the most sense to me, is that someone at Army Headquarters assumed this would be implied by their earlier orders, and the orders to Davu. The culprit here would be either Napoleon himself or his chief of staff, Marshal Berthier, who was responsible for translating the Emperor's oral instructions into written orders. Other sources claim the orders did arrive, but were garbled or vague. Still others claim there was some kind of delay, and the orders did not arrive until it was too late for Bernadotte to act on them, although that seems to be disproven by subsequent events. Whatever the exact origins of the dispute, it showed that the marshals were not a harmonious group. There were men at the highest levels of the Grande Armée who put pride ahead of duty. Perhaps this was a natural consequence of assembling a group of self-made warlords and investing them with so much power. By their very nature, the marshals were adventurers, rogues, swashbucklers. Rising to the top of the revolutionary armies required bravery and skill, but also self-promotion, risk-taking, and egomania. Maybe it was inevitable that a group like this would run into these types of problems. In any event, in the wee hours of October 14, 1806, 3rd Corps began its march north, and behind them, 1st Corps stayed put. Between the fog and the darkness, it was slow going, but they had a lot of ground to cover if they hoped to be in position to catch the Prussians unaware the next day. However, as Davout's light cavalry fanned out around his advancing corps, they began reporting troubling discoveries to the west. Prussian units were on the move on the far bank of the Zala. Napoleon's plan had assumed all or most of the Prussian forces would remain near Jena, where he planned to engage them in the morning. Davout's cavalry were able to seize prisoners from these mysterious Prussian formations to the west, and these prisoners said they came from the main field army, under the Duke of Brunswick. This was the first indication something was wrong, the most logical interpretation of these facts would be that Napoleon had been mistaken to assume the Prussians would stand and fight at Jena, and that the Duke's entire army was on the march north. However, this was far from the only interpretation. And of course, reports from prisoners are anecdotal and not always reliable. 
Davout pressed ahead, but his guard was now up. After a few hours on the march, Third Corps reached their first objective, the town of Curzon, with an important bridge over the Zala. They occupied it and began to cross the river. Meanwhile, much the same thing was playing out on the Prussian side. The Duke of Brunswick's scouts became aware of enemy activity across the river. Just like their French counterparts, the Prussian horsemen seized a few prisoners to try to determine what exactly was going on. These prisoners informed them that they came from the main body of Davout's corps, which was already at Cousin, crossing the river. Brunswick had planned on taking this exact route, using the bridge at Cousin, and then picking up the same road Davout had taken as it continued north. At this stage, barely any of Davout's corps had managed to pass over the bridge. He may have had fewer than a thousand men on the far bank of the Zala. If Brunswick had hurried north and ordered his entire vanguard to push towards Curzon, he might have been able to drive that small group back over the river and denied Davout his chance to cross at Curzon. With a little luck, he might have even trapped some of Third Corps on the wrong side of the Zala and destroyed them. But the Duke of Brunswick was a cautious commander. Remember, to generals of that older generation, the primary mission of an army commander was the preservation of his own forces, not the destruction of the enemy. Brunswick decided on a much safer plan. He would shift his line of retreat from the northeast to the northwest, and deploy his forces for a limited battle, just enough to push the French out of his way. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Just before 7 in the morning, Davout's men secured the town of Hassenhausen, just west of Curzon. They sent out light cavalry west to scout the next leg of the march. As the horsemen trotted into the fog, they could suddenly make out Prussian cavalry in their path. Then they could hear the roar of cannon. They had run right into several squadrons of enemy cavalry, backed up by artillery. The French scouts beat a hasty retreat back to Hassenhausen, and told their commanders they had encountered the enemy in force. The French infantry formed squares and prepared to engage. The Battle of Auerstedt had begun. Davout's men inched forward in their cumbersome square formations, slowly taking up a small defensive line around the town of Hassenhausen. Davout sent an urgent message to Marshal Bernadotte, informing him that he had encountered a major enemy force and needed reinforcements. The French squares would have been vulnerable to the Prussian artillery, but the superior gunnery of the French gun crews quickly silenced them. Several other Prussian cannon were captured by the French in a sneaky cavalry charge that caught the Prussian gunners off guard. 
The Prussian cavalry was led by General Gebhard Leberecht von Blücher. At 63, he was part of that old guard of Prussian commanders, men who had made their names as young junior officers in the Seven Years' War. But unlike many of his peers, Blücher was a dynamic and vigorous leader. In fact, if anything, he was too aggressive. We will have a lot more to say about him in future episodes. Blücher ordered his horsemen to charge the squares again and again, but without artillery support, they could make little dent in the French defenses. Casualties mounted, but the Prussians kept coming back for more. They continued stubbornly attacking until French reinforcements were able to join the line, including heavier artillery. This additional firepower proved too much. The Prussian cavalry finally broke and galloped for the rear. However, in the meantime, Prussian reinforcements had arrived and were now in a position to engage. A division of infantry under General Wilhelm von Schmettau, supported by more cavalry. The Prussians launched a small attack, mostly the vanguard of this division. They were able to close the distance with the French and engage them in close combat. The town of Hassenhausen, anchoring the French center, saw intense street fighting. After a bitter struggle, Schmettau's men finally succeeded in pushing the French out of the town. For a moment, it looks like the Prussians had the momentum to push Davout from this position, perhaps even all the way back to the river. But the French held on and kept counterattacking. Hassenhausen was retaken, and soon the Prussians were falling back to their own lines. Around this time, the Prussian commander, the Duke of Brunswick, arrived on the battlefield. We've criticized Brunswick a lot over the past few episodes, but we should keep in mind that to the men of the Prussian army, his reputation remained undiminished. This man was almost universally admired and respected. The battle had started badly for the Prussians, but they must have felt a little relief as they saw the Duke riding across the field. The situation was uncertain, but they were now in good hands, at least so they thought. The King of Prussia, Frederick William III, arrived alongside the Duke and his entourage, although only the most naive soldiers would have put any faith in his martial abilities. Once he got the rest of Schmettau's division into position, the Duke was about to order an attack, but delayed at the last minute, preferring to wait for another division to arrive and deploy on the battlefield. Once again, Brunswick was cautious to a fault. During this lull, another French division was able to arrive and deploy as well, totally negating any advantage the Prussians might have gained from waiting. However, Davout could see that more and more Prussian units were arriving on the field. He was already outnumbered, and there was every indication the problem would only get worse. There was still no word from Marshal Bernadotte. Davout sent him another messenger, this time taking care to emphasize that he was in a precarious situation and urgently needed assistance. Finally, just before ten in the morning, Brunswick was ready, and the offensive began. The Duke himself would lead the attack. On Davout's right flank, General von Schmettau's division was met with furious resistance. The terrain here was unfavorable for an attack. Every French musket and cannon in this whole sector was able to pour fire on them as they advanced. Soon, Schmettau's men were suffering horrific casualties, 
and their attack slowed to a crawl. However, on the other end of the line, that fresh Prussian division had much better success. The French left was not as well deployed, and the terrain was not as favorable. The Prussian commander, General Wartensleben, was able to concentrate almost his entire division on a single French unit, the 85th Regiment of the Line. The French held on as best they could, but they stood little chance against sustained pressure from such superior numbers. Finally, the men of the 85th could take no more, and they ran for the rear. Seeing his soldiers rout, Marshal Davout spurred his horse forward, and took off towards the embattled left flank of the French line. Davout may not have been the most charismatic man in the army, but he cut an impressive figure. Remember, he wore his dress uniform into combat, complete with a plumed hat, bright red sash, and a dazzling array of medals and gold flourishes. The presence of the Iron Marshal was enough to steady the remaining troops. Davout called forward two fresh regiments from his reserves, who were able to plug the gap and hold off the Prussian advance. The danger was over, at least for the moment. However, those two regiments had been the only reserve for the entire corps. Every French soldier on the battlefield was now deployed in the main line. If that line was broken just one more time, it would likely spell disaster for the entire corps. Before Brunswick's attack, Davout's situation had been precarious. Now it was deadly dangerous. The French had a relatively decent position, but they had their backs to the river. They were badly outnumbered, with no reserve. Most of the enemy's units were still fresh. There was still no word from Marshal Bernadotte. Third Corps had fought well so far, but they were staring over the precipice of disaster. It had been years since a major French force had suffered a catastrophic defeat, but in the current situation, all it would take was one mistake, or one stroke of brilliance from the Prussians, for Third Corps to break that streak. However, Davout and his men didn't know it yet, but developments on the other end of the line had already transformed the dynamics of this battle. Shortly after leading his men in that bloody attack on the French right, General Schmettau fell wounded. I have not been able to discover exactly what happened to him, but whatever it was, it was serious enough that his aides immediately took him off the battlefield to see a surgeon. At almost the same time, the army's commander, the Duke of Brunswick, was struck in the face. It's a strange coincidence. You might remember that at Austerlitz, the climactic battle of the last war just ten months earlier, the Allied commander, General Kutuzov, had also been struck in the face. Kutuzov was lucky. The bullet only grazed him. The Duke of Brunswick was unlucky. He was struck right in the front of his face, instantly blinding both eyes. Amazingly, he survived although obviously he was in no condition to continue in command. He too was rushed to the rear by his aides. Within the space of only a few minutes, the Prussian army had lost one of its divisional commanders and the commander-in-chief. This would have been devastating for any army, but it hit the Prussians at Auerstedt particularly hard. First, there was the psychological blow. The Duke of Brunswick was by far the most respected officer in the army. There was no one approaching his stature. 
Seeing him carried off the field with a horrific, debilitating wound must have been traumatic. Remember, for most of the Prussians at Auerstedt, this was their first battle, and the man they had all trusted to see them through it had just received the kind of painful, mutilating wound that every soldier dreads. But the wounding of Brunswick was also a huge practical problem. Think back to some of the flaws in the Prussian military we've discussed in the last few episodes. This was a very top-down army, from the privates all the way up to the generals. Unflinching obedience was the ideal, not individual initiative. With the army commander and one of the divisional commanders suddenly incapacitated, many Prussian officers didn't know where to turn. They were unaccustomed to acting on their own, without supervision. This should have been time for the army's staff officers to shine. Their duties included ensuring the smooth transmission of orders, maintaining communications, and coordinating all the units of the army. However, you might recall that the Prussian army staff was behind the times. French staff officers were part of a highly organized system. Prussian staff officers were more like members of an entourage of each individual general. At every level of the French army, from Napoleon's own headquarters down to the headquarters of each individual brigade, the staff was permanent and used to working with one another. The lines of communication between other headquarters were clear. None of this was true in the Prussian army. If this had happened to the Grande Armée, there would have been a huge shock, of course, but that well-developed staff system would have sprung into action to keep the army coordinated and keep the orders flowing, at least temporarily until a new commander was able to take charge. The Prussians had no such well-developed system. As soon as Brunswick was hit, their army became effectively leaderless. This was compounded by the fact that many of the Prussian army's best staff officers had been forced to leave the headquarters to pick up slack left by less capable field officers. When the news of Brunswick's wounding hit headquarters, the army's chief of staff, the very capable Colonel Gerhard von Scharnhorst, was not present. He was in combat on the left flank, actually not too far from where Brunswick had been hit. We've quoted a young staff officer named Karl von Clausewitz several times on this show. He was assigned to the headquarters staff at this battle, but he wasn't there either. He had taken command of a battalion of infantry on the front lines, because all its officers were either dead, wounded, or too incompetent. It's somewhat ironic given the reputation he would earn later in life as a military genius, but this is actually the largest body of troops Clausewitz would ever command in combat. So, to make a very long story short, when Brunswick was hit, the Prussian army was effectively decapitated. The structures which should have provided the army with leadership in this scenario were underdeveloped and not functioning properly. Davout and Third Corps may have been in bad shape, but all of a sudden, the Prussians were in the midst of a crisis. Their attack disintegrated. The men of Schmettau and Varzenleben's divisions retreated back to their own lines, and there was no sign of any kind of follow-up. Davout and his soldiers probably couldn't believe their luck. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And so there was another lull in the battle. While the Prussians struggled to rally and reorganize their army, and the French caught their breath. Of course, that doesn't mean there wasn't anything going on. The artillery of both sides was still firing. Davout had only about 48 guns, but the vast majority of his artillery was concentrated, whereas the Prussian cannon were scattered all over the battlefield. Combined with their superior doctrine, training, and experience, French gunners were able to hold their own, in spite of their small numbers. A lull in the battle was also an opportunity for the French light infantry to creep forward in their loose skirmish formations, to snipe and harass the enemy. The Prussian army didn't make much use of light infantry, not many of their soldiers were trained in this style of warfare, and not many of their officers were familiar with it. Some Prussian units did deploy their own skirmishers, but most had no choice but to sit there and take it firing off the occasional volley with little result. Meanwhile, more Prussian forces continued to arrive. By now, almost every unit of Brunswick's army was present on the battlefield. Davout's troops were outnumbered by roughly three to one. Under normal circumstances, it would have been time for the Prussians to use their numerical superiority to expand their line, then make one final push forcing the French to either engage in a difficult fighting retreat or be enveloped. At this same time, about 12 miles or 19 kilometers to the south, Napoleon was trying to deploy his units at Jena for exactly this type of attack. But the numbers do not tell the whole story. Chaos reigned within the Prussian lines. Officers had no idea what was going on. The soldiers had suffered a terrible hit to their morale and seeing their leaders so confused only made things worse. Finally, someone took charge and asserted authority over this wavering army, but it was probably the last person you would want in charge in a crisis, King Frederick William III. Under the very best of conditions, the king struggled to make decisive decisions. The stress and fear of commanding an army in battle for the first time did not improve his leadership abilities. Still, the very fact that someone had taken command seemed to steady the wavering Prussians. In spite of their troubles, the Prussian line was still getting stronger, as fresh units continued to deploy. Davout was outnumbered, without reserves, with his back to the river. The Prussians were still in a position to salvage this battle, and even win a convincing victory, but only if their king could take matters into hand. However, just like Napoleon at Jena, Frederick William now believed he was facing the main body of the enemy, led by Napoleon himself. 
But he could see that there were only a few French divisions engaged in the front line, which begged the question, where was the rest of the Grande Armée? We know they were busy at the Battle of Jena, which was only a few hours away from its climax. But Frederick William was gripped by the fear that they might be somewhere around Auerstedt, ready to appear either right in front of him to support Davout, or along one of the Prussian flanks, or even in the rear. This was Napoleon, who knew what he was capable of. And so the king vacillated, hemming and hawing over the question of launching another attack, and trying to decide where to deploy his reinforcements. This delay proved to be a godsend for the French. They could see that there were massive Prussian forces arrayed just in front of them, waiting for the order to attack. After barely holding off the last assault, they knew that barring a miracle, they stood little chance of resisting. If the line broke, it would probably be a mad dash for the bridge. Hopefully, some brave souls would be willing to fight a rearguard, to sacrifice themselves to allow some of the corps to escape. But if the line was broken, the likeliest outcome would be destruction. However, the minutes ticked by, and the Prussians did not advance. Then, the French got their miracle. The final division of Davout's corps arrived on the battlefield, 10,000 fresh troops under General Charles-Antoine Morand, increasing the strength of the French defensive line by about 50%. They arrived along the stricken left flank, just in time to blunt the long-delayed Prussian attack. The left was supposed to be the weakest part of the French line, just waiting to be broken by the final coup de grace. But once King Frederick William finally summoned the courage to order the attack, the Prussian infantry barely got within firing range of the French lines before they were falling back in the face of a determined counterattack. Just as the French began to gain momentum, the call to charge sounded from the Prussian lines, and their cavalry began to trot forward. General Morand immediately saw the danger and ordered his men to form squares. They held their fire until the Prussian horsemen were almost on top of them, unleashing a brutal volley at a distance of just 30 paces. It was a knockout blow. The Prussian charge came to an immediate stop, and the survivors turned around to gallop for the rear. By now, it was around noon, and another factor was coming into play on the battlefield. Some battles have a wild card, something extraneous that no general could predict, that plays a significant role in events. It could be the weather, or a piece of news, or a personal issue with one of the commanders. At Auerstedt, the wild card was the Battle of Jena. The two battlefields were separated by about 12 miles, or 19 kilometers. If you think back to the strategic picture from the last few episodes, the French were advancing from the south, and the Prussians were falling back to the north. So, whenever a Prussian unit broke and routed at Jena, the survivors naturally ran due north, deeper into their own territory, on the most direct possible route to put distance between themselves and Napoleon. The Prussian lines at Auerstedt were almost exactly due north of Jena. So, as the fighting at Jena went badly for the Prussians, more and more panicked, terrified Prussian soldiers began running north, where many of them came into contact with their comrades from Brunswick's army. 
Just imagine what types of things these frightened men must have said as they passed north. Run for your lives. Napoleon is right behind us. Put yourselves in the shoes of those Prussian soldiers they passed waiting to go into action at Auerstedt. Most of them had never seen a battle. They had already heard that their commander was grievously wounded, and they had seen the chaos and uncertainty that had ensued afterwards. Maybe the first few panicked soldiers they see running past, away from Jena, were easy to ignore. After all, that could just be the survivors of one unit. Even victorious armies often have one or two regiments rout in a major battle. But if this keeps happening, if those small groups become a constant stream, how long does it take for the men waiting to go fight at Auerstedt to become seriously worried? Maybe even start thinking about running themselves. Especially if they already suspect the Battle of Auerstedt is not going well. Soon, there were reports of serious morale problems in the Prussian rear. The Prussian leadership still had no clear information about what was going on at Jena, but it was increasingly clear that some kind of disaster had befallen General Hohenlohe and his men. However, King Frederick William still believed he was facing Napoleon himself at Auerstedt, and he was still worried that more French units would arrive at Auerstedt at any moment. Even after the timely arrival of General Moran's division, the Prussians still enjoyed a huge numerical advantage, roughly two to one. The French still had no reserve. Moran's troops had gone directly into the line. Many Prussian units were still fresh. On paper, Frederick William still held the advantage, but that steady stream of defeated soldiers running north from Jena was growing larger by the moment. The French seemed to have somehow taken the momentum, and his own army's morale was falling apart. Frederick William himself was still preoccupied with his fear that as soon as he committed to a course of action, Napoleon would hoodwink him. Once again, the king dithered while his men grew more and more worried. Yavu had little idea of the struggles within the enemy army. He didn't know that the Duke of Brunswick was out of the picture, or the degree of chaos this had sown within the Prussian leadership. He didn't know about the bands of panicked soldiers spreading fear in the Prussian rear. But Davu was a great general, and although he didn't know any of the details, he could sense that the Prussians were wavering, maybe even on the verge of total collapse. His corps had suffered terribly. Nearly a quarter of the men he had led across the river Zala that morning were now dead or wounded. But Davu trusted his soldiers. He knew there was still some fight left in them. With the enemy looking inexplicably weak, they had a real chance to beat the odds and actually win this battle. And so, at around noon, Davu ordered Third Corps to attack all along the line against an enemy twice their number. Despite the fragile state of the Prussian army, it was not an easy fight. The 61st Regiment of the Line, from General Moran's division, had to advance directly into Prussian artillery fire. Moran would later recall, quote, Each movement of the regiment was indicated on the ground by the brave men it left there. End quote. In spite of the odds, Third Corps made good progress. They had the stomach for this kind of fight, and the Prussians no longer did. After about an hour of furious combat, King Frederick William bowed to the inevitable, 
Most of his units were already falling back. He simply made it official, giving the order for an immediate retreat from the battlefield. The French advance continued, netting thousands of prisoners. The Prussians attempted a rearguard, and fought heroically for a short time, but were soon outflanked and forced to join the retreat. The Iron Marshal and the men of Third Corps had done the impossible. The Battle of Auerstedt was over, and it had ended in a convincing French victory. The cost had been considerable. Third Corps lost just over 7,000 men. They had entered the battle with roughly 30,000. Roughly a quarter of Davout's command had become casualties. The Prussians had suffered severe losses as well, and those numbers continued to grow as they were pursued by Davout's cavalry. By the end of the day, perhaps as many as 15,000 soldiers from Brunswick's army were dead, wounded, or captured. Third Corps had inflicted more than two casualties on the enemy for every one they had suffered themselves although French casualties made up a much larger proportion of their force. Both Jena and Auerstedt had been convincing French victories, but it had been a bloody day for the French. Between the two battles, over 12,000 French troops had been killed, wounded, or captured on October 14th. About 7% of Napoleon's entire invasion force, gone in the space of a few hours. Now, it should be said that the vast majority of those casualties were only wounded, and many of them would eventually return to service, but many would not. As for the Prussians, they were perhaps lower than any army we have ever discussed on this show. They had gone into the war with an attitude of superiority. The events of October 14, 1806, had exposed that attitude as a delusion. As one Prussian officer put it, quote, the carefully assembled and apparently unshakable military structure was suddenly shattered to its foundations. End quote. In total, the three Prussian field armies lost roughly 40,000 men on October 14th, representing nearly a third of their total strength. Many of the survivors were scattered, disorganized, and had lost or thrown away their equipment. Practically speaking, all three armies were almost completely destroyed. And this had implications far beyond the army. The Prussian military ethos was an important part of the country's identity. Granted, in this era, things like national identity were really only important to the very upper crust of society, but they were the ones running things, and they felt these defeats not only as military setbacks, but blows to the very cores of their identities. The kind of thing that makes people question everything they think they know about the world around them. Prussia was now practically helpless to resist Napoleon's continued advance into their territory. There were still a great number of Prussian troops scattered in garrisons throughout the country, and a few units that had escaped in good order from Jena and Auerstedt, and some of the more tenacious Prussian officers still clung to the hope that they could somehow marshal all these forces and find a place to hold off the French until reinforcements arrived from Russia. We'll talk about some of these efforts next episode, but in their hearts, they must have known they stood little chance of success. So, what are we to make of the twin battles of Jena and Auerstedt? There is a famous line that originates with the French historian François-Guy Urtoul, quote, At Jena, Napoleon won a battle he could not lose. At Auerstedt, Davout won a battle he could not win. End quote. 
There is some truth to that. We shouldn't downplay the hard fighting that occurred at Jena, but Napoleon went into that engagement with massive advantages, and his opponent adopted a losing strategy from the very beginning. On the other hand, Davout and Third Corps had no business winning at Auerstedt. They were on the brink of annihilation for hours. We can pay tribute to their toughness and skill, and to the leadership of the Iron Marshal, but the truth is, without a lot of luck and a lot of incompetence on the Prussian side, they almost certainly would have lost the battle, probably in catastrophic fashion. Jena and Auerstedt never supplanted Austerlitz in the Napoleonic myth. Austerlitz has gone down in the popular imagination as Napoleon's great masterpiece, and Jena and Auerstedt simply as two major victories. Hopefully it's pretty clear why. Basically everything went right for the French at Austerlitz. The Allies had completely swallowed Napoleon's deception. His plan anticipated exactly how they would react, and the Grande Armée executed that plan with precision. On the other hand, there had been significant mistakes at Jena and Auerstedt. Napoleon had struggled to get a handle on the location and intentions of the enemy. I would say this was mostly not his fault, but an unintended silver lining to the weaknesses and failures of the Prussian leadership. I'm reminded of the feeling of playing poker against an absolute beginner. It can be hard to read their face and body language because they don't actually know the game well enough to play rationally. The Prussian generals making and then cancelling plans, marching their forces back and forth across the Zala Valley, and sending detachments off on pointless missions may have exhausted their troops, weakened their position, and stressed their logistics, but it also confused the French to no end. If they had behaved more rationally, and thus more predictably, Napoleon would have found it much easier to pin them down, and probably would not have sent Third Corps into such an exposed position. Then there was the conduct of the marshals. At Jena, Marshal Michel Ney's reckless attack into the enemy center nearly led to a disaster. By that point of the battle, there was little doubt as to the outcome. It's almost like Marshal Ney was deliberately trying to inject a little drama into the proceedings. He and his men were very lucky that their enemies were not able to take advantage of this mistake, and that the Emperor was so quick and skillful in rescuing them. But Ney's lapse at Jena was totally overshadowed by the conduct of Marshal Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte. French army doctrine called for commanders to always march to the sound of guns. That is, always, even in the absence of orders, to move to support friendly units engaged in battle. As we've discussed in this episode, exactly what orders Bernadotte had, and when, remain open questions. However, there is no doubt that from his position on the eastern bank of the Zala, Bernadotte and his men could hear the cannon fire and musket volleys from both Jena and Auerstedt, and he had made no movement to support either battle. Even if you believe Bernadotte's story, that his refusal to march had nothing to do with ego and was merely a question of orders, as soon as he heard the roar of cannon, he must have immediately understood what was happening and he knew that he would have been expected to march and help. Marshal Davout never forgave him. In our very first episode on the marshals, I mentioned they would become notorious for their internal rivalries. 
In the last campaign, we saw Marshal Ney and Marshal Murat trading insults and badmouthing each other to anyone who would listen. Well, here's another war, and here's another rivalry. Napoleon was so furious with Bernadotte that he refused to even write to him. He was worried what he might say. Instead, he ordered Berthier to write a letter on his behalf, expressing his dissatisfaction. Bernadotte never admitted fault, but four days later, he and his corps found themselves at the city of Halle, which boasted a huge Prussian garrison, perhaps as many as 16,000 strong. Bernadotte stormed the city with reckless abandon, inflicting another crushing defeat on the Prussians, but exposing himself and his corps to incredible danger. The day went well for the French, but many wondered if Bernadotte's aggressiveness was born out of a desire to prove that he and his corps were not afraid to fight, and to redeem himself in the eyes of the emperor. Napoleon would later say of this matter, quote, This business is so hateful that if I sent Bernadotte before a court-martial, it would be the equivalent of ordering him shot. It is better for me not to speak to him about it but I shall take care that he shall know what I think of his behavior. I believe he has enough honor to recognize that he has performed a disgraceful act, regarding which I shall not bandy words with him. End quote. When Napoleon finally did write to Bernadotte, he was very frank but measured. Quote, I do not make a habit of making recriminations over the past, because nothing can be done about it. However, your army corps was not on the field of battle, and I find that disastrous. Had you obeyed my orders, you would have been with Marshal Davu to support him. Marshal Davu had to endure the main efforts of the enemy army. All that is most unfortunate. End quote. As always, when it comes to the relationship between Bernadotte and Napoleon, People then and now have speculated that this incident may have been influenced by the fact that Bernadotte was married to Napoleon's first love, Desiree Clary, the sister of his brother Joseph's wife. Depending on who you ask, this either poisoned Napoleon against Bernadotte or influenced him to go easy on the wayward marshal. It has also been suggested that Bernadotte was mostly a scapegoat. From a certain perspective, the fact that Davu had gone into battle alone and nearly seen his corps destroyed did not reflect well on Napoleon as overall commander. Much better to blame a subordinate than allow the emperor's generalship to be called into question. I'll let you be the judge. Many accounts of these battles suggest that Napoleon slighted Davu, that the emperor didn't like being overshadowed by a subordinate and so downplayed the battle at Auerstedt and minimized Davout's contributions to French success. The truth is more complicated. For starters, Napoleon named Davout Duke of Auerstedt in honor of this victory. Here's how the emperor's official bulletin to the Grande Armée, released the day after the two battles, described Davout's contributions. Quote, On our right, the corps of Marshal Davout was really astonishing. Not only did he contain the biggest part of the enemy forces, but beat them back for more than three leagues. This marshal showed a distinguished bravery and strength of character that is the first quality of a man of war. End quote. That's pretty high praise. I don't think you could read that and come away with the impression that Napoleon was trying to minimize Davout's contributions. 
However, that doesn't mean Napoleonic propaganda was totally honest about the course of this battle. In the official French version of the story, the twin battles were almost always referred to in the singular, as the Battle of Jena-Auerstedt, and the narrative strongly implied that these were just two parts of a single event, with Davout commanding the far-right flank of the Grande Armée and Napoleon in overall command. I hope, after listening to the last two episodes, you can see that's a bit misleading. Yes, Davout had been following Napoleon's orders when he took his corps north, but the engagement at Auerstedt had not been a part of Napoleon's plan. Davout had fought alone, without any assistance or guidance from the emperor. And the events at Jena had little impact at Auerstedt, and vice versa. The two battles really only overlapped in the form of those fleeing Prussian soldiers from Jena who had helped destroy the morale of their comrades fighting at Auerstedt. You might say that Napoleon's ego always demanded he place himself in the spotlight. If he were here to defend himself, he would probably say that the political stability of France and the very legitimacy of the state depended on his reputation as a general. It would have been political malpractice for him to allow a subordinate to upstage him. And Davout had gotten a just reward for his contributions, so what was the harm in fudging the truth a little? All fair points, perhaps, but whose idea had it been to found the state on Napoleon's reputation? From the French perspective, the battles at Jena and Auerstedt were flawed victories. Welcome news on the home front, to be sure, but not true masterpieces like Austerlitz. The Prussians saw things very differently. I don't think anyone in Prussia cared that Napoleon's plan had been based on incorrect assumptions, or that the willfulness of the marshals had temporarily put French victory in doubt. The Prussians, the events of October 14, 1806, amounted to a national catastrophe of unprecedented proportions. In his last communication with Frederick William before breaking off diplomatic contact, Napoleon had warned the king, quote, before a month has passed, your situation will be different. End quote. In context, this was a not so subtle threat that the king's negotiating position would be drastically weakened if his armies were destroyed. That letter wasn't received until October 12th. The way things worked out, it had only taken Napoleon two days to make good on that threat. With its field armies destroyed, and the French on the verge of occupying the entire country, Prussia had lost almost all its standing as a great power. The French had dealt a similar defeat to the Austrians a year earlier, but as we discussed in past episodes, France needed to keep Austria relatively strong to preserve order in southeastern Europe and provide a check on any expansionist dreams of the Ottomans and the Russians. The same could not be said of Prussia which had been diplomatically isolated for years and did not play an important role in European geopolitics. And so the country was at Napoleon's mercy. He would dictate its future. Prussia had been on the rise for over a hundred years. Generations of Europeans, both inside and outside the kingdom, had seen it as a place with great potential. For over a century, Prussian statesmen dreamed of one day eclipsing Austria, to take their rightful place as the paramount German state, perhaps even assume some kind of formal political leadership over all of northern Germany. 
The twin catastrophes at Jena and Auerstedt seemed to have extinguished that dream forever. If Prussia had a future at all, it would probably be as some kind of protectorate of France. Before the war, one of Prussia's leading politicians, Baron Stein, had warned that unless King Frederick William made drastic changes, quote, it is to be expected that the state will either be dissolved or lose its independence, and the love and respect of its subjects will fail it completely, end quote. Well, the king actually had followed some of Stein's recommendations, but it hadn't been enough to forestall the danger Stein saw coming. Now, it seemed the outcome the baron had warned of might be coming to pass. Once Napoleon took Berlin and occupied the rest of Prussia, there would be little stopping him from destroying the state completely or reducing it to a French vassal. However, as to that last part of Stein's warning, about the love and respect of its subjects failing the kingdom completely, it remained to be seen whether or not that would come true. Many Prussian units surrendered as the Grande Armée fanned out across northern Germany. However, many others continued to resist. Still others fell back east, towards Russian territory, hoping to find help from their new allies to continue the fight. King Frederick William chose to accompany these forces, rather than returning to Berlin to negotiate a presumably humiliating surrender with Napoleon. It looked like Prussia was about to lose its sovereignty, perhaps even cease to exist, but many Prussians were not yet ready to give up. Next episode, we'll continue to examine the aftermath of the twin battles of Jena and Auerstedt. And, don't forget, in a few weeks there will be a new dispatch. Go to patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon if you want to check it out. And if you are already signed up, don't forget to leave a question for the next installment. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.